Majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what's mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. And yet, he still will never leave the one behind. Didn't our worship team do an awesome job? I want to welcome you to Northridge Church. You may not know, we're one church that meets in multiple locations, so I want to say a big hey to Northridge Brighton and Northridge Grosseal, and for all the guests and regular attenders there, thanks for that, and for all of you here in Plymouth, thank you for being a part of this, and if you are a guest, welcome. This, this weekend is a very special weekend, and it's really where we as a church and I as a pastor am making a declaration or stepping out, but it might not be the declaration you think. The, the truth is, as a pastor, I, I care so deeply about exposing people, you, to the reality that God's truth can stand up to and against and ultimately defeat any idea on this planet. I mean, God's Word can, yeah. Of course, the world has a very different narrative. The world basically says that, you know, God and the application of intelligence are antithetical. You can't, you can't believe in God and, and pursue intellectual, rational thinking. God and science don't mix. They're opposite. And that narrative is absolutely wrong. And we believe that Christianity is an intelligent faith and deserves intelligent conversations. And so, though Northridge is absolutely committed to standing on the Word of God, would never do any teaching apart from that, you need to know, among those of us who are committed to the authority of God's Word and His truth, there is, and this might surprise some of you, varying opinion among us at times. Have you noticed that? It's a crazy deal. And such is the case when it comes to God's creation story. God gave us the truth of how he created. He gave us the truth of how he created. But there are different and varying ways that believe in the authority of God's word 
in how to interpret what he meant. And I love an intelligent discussion like this. Many of you have probably heard of the young earth theory. The young earth theory is what most Christians are informed about and all that different stuff. But there's also an old earth theory that loves and embraces Genesis and the creation story. And our declaration this weekend is not a declaration of a certain belief towards the Christian creation theology. Our declaration this weekend is this. Christianity is an intelligent faith. It deserves intelligent discussions, and it stands up to any, any theory on this planet. And that's our declaration. With that in mind, would you please give a Northridge welcome to Hugh Ross. Thank you for your warm welcome. There are reasons to believe, founded it 33 years ago, to communicate the message that every day there are new scientific discoveries being published that make a stronger case for the Christian faith in inerrancy of the Bible. And our mission is to take these brand new reasons to believe to bring people to the traditional reasons. Now the message you hear today is just one of several hundred that we've got posted on our YouTube channel. And so if you like what you see today, or if you run into people who've got questions, uh, point them in that direction. And of course, you can engage us on social media. And as you walk out, you'll be handed one of these cards, and uh, you can fill it out. And if you do that, you'll get a free copy of this DVD where I tell my story of how astronomy and physics brought me to faith in Jesus Christ eight years before I really even got to know a, a Christian. I'm going to give you some of those details in my talk today, but you'll see much more in that DVD. It also features me answering questions from skeptics. So I encourage you to use that as a tool that you can give to someone who's not yet a follower of uh, Jesus Christ. And you can also text me to 31996, and that's your portal to get lots of free videos, book chapters, and much more. And if you go to reasons.org slash Ross, that's where you can get a free chapter of the book that I'm going to be featuring uh, in my talk today, uh, Navigating Genesis. That's also a place where you can get free chapters of several other of my books. But I've asked to speak on this topic. Science and faith are the enemies or their allies. And one of the more frequent challenges I hear is, well, you can't become a Christian because science contradicts Genesis. Have you ever heard that before? Okay, a few of you, okay. I get that frequently. And what I'm going to do is kind of show you how actually my picking up the Bible for the first time at age 17 and giving it a serious read, looked at the first few chapters of Genesis, and that was a huge step of my becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm going to share with you what I discovered at age 17. Okay. The Bible begins with a sentence, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And I wanted to know what are these heavens and earth. And I read through the Old Testament, not once did I see the word universe. There is no biblical Hebrew word for universe. Instead they got this phrase, <clears throat> Shemayen Ares, the heavens and the earth, shows up nine times in the Old Testament always a reference to the totality of physical reality, referring to all matter, energy, space, and time. 
In other words, the entire uh, universe. Now, <clears throat> I was reading this in my teenage years. That was a time when physicists in Britain and South Africa were developing the first of the space-time theorems. Today, we have over 30 of those space-time theorems. In fact, I know some of you want to really want to look at this stuff, so I brought one with me. Uh, physical review letters, it's online. I mean, this is one of these things you just can't put down. It's just incredibly fascinating reading, <laughs> especially if you're into differential equations. But it ends with a statement that we could all understand. It makes the point that if the universe expands, then there must be a beginning to space and time. And only a universe that expands permits the existence of physical life. So the fact that you're breathing right now proves that there's a beginning to space and time. And one of the three authors of this space-time theorem, Alexander Vilenkin, not a believer, wrote this in a book a year after the theorem was published. He said, quote, with the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. And what is that problem? Proof of a space-time beginning establishes that there must be a causal agent beyond space and time who creates our universe of space, time, matter, and energy. In other words, a miracle walking God, working God must exist. Sometimes I get this challenge. Okay, Hugh, can you prove to me through science that a miracle takes place? I said, well, what bigger miracle can you ask for than the creation of all matter, energy, space, and time? And now we've got the theorems that establish that. A miracle working God must exist. We get all that from the first sentence of the Bible. But I want to spend the rest of my time taking you through the six days of creation. And these are the three key points I want to review for you. The point of view for the six days of creation, the meaning of the word day that's used in Genesis 1, where we're going to spend most of our time in number three, the description and the order of events, and how we can put that to a rigorous scientific test through the latest scientific discoveries. So number one, point of view. And what's happening here in the text, it's changing the frame of reference. The point of view for Genesis 1-1 was the universe. Genesis 1-2 changes it to the surface of the earth. The Spirit of God is brooding over the surface of the waters of planet Earth. And so we're to understand the account of creation in the six days from that point. If you remember nothing else in the talk today, remember this. The point of view is below the clouds, not above the clouds. That makes an enormous difference. I run into scientists who say Genesis 1 is teaching scientific nonsense. There's no way I can become a Christian. I says, well, from what point of view are you interpreting this? They put it above the clouds. From that point of view, it is scientific nonsense. From the surface of the earth, everything changes. So that's the key point. And Job 38, verse 9, clarifies this. Job 37, 38, and 39 also take you through the account of the six days of creation but in much more scientific detail than we get in Genesis chapter 1. That answers another key objection. A number of scientists are in to say, 
Look at how much is left out of Genesis 1. Why does it leave out the most important points? And I says, well, no problem. It's already covered in the book of Job. And the content of the book of Job predates that of the book of Genesis. Moses could afford to be brief. But what it tells us in verse 9, God speaks and says, I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. So here it's explicit about why it's dark on the face of the deep. It's dark because God had blanketed the seas with clouds that would not let light through. Now, as a 17-year-old, I had the advantage of knowing, through my studies in astronomy, that planets the size of Earth and the distance it is from its star begins with very thick atmospheres. So the primordial Earth had an atmosphere 200 times thicker than it has today. Such a thick atmosphere would not let any light from the sun, moon, and stars penetrate to the surface. Now, what about this word day? What I notice picking up the Bible for the first time is that the word day in Genesis 1, at a minimum, must have three distinct literal definitions because three are used in the text. Creation day one is talking about days and nights. There's using day to refer to the daylight hours. On creation day four, it's contrasting season, days, and years. That's day is 24 hours. And in Genesis 2-4, it uses the word day to refer to the entirety of creation history. That's day as a long period of time. And I also notice that the creation days are bracketed by an evening and a morning. And I didn't know exactly what the Hebrew words there meant for evening and morning, but I knew at a minimum it was telling us that each day had a definite start point and a definite end point. But when I got to the seventh day, there is no evening and morning. And I found three texts in the Bible, Psalm 95, John 5, and Hebrews 4, that explicitly state we're still in God's seventh day. Now, part of my story is that when I was seven years of age, that's when I got really interested in astronomy. In fact, I was reading five books on physics and astronomy per week, starting at age seven. You say, that's kind of weird. Well, I'm on the autistic spectrum. That's quite normal for young children that are on the autistic spectrum to focus on a particular subject. My parents didn't know anything about autism. I didn't either. But I knew they were, they, they thought I was obsessive. I don't know what got them into thinking that, but uh, <laughs> they decided at, when I was 11 to buy this big, thick book on evolution or biology because they wanted me to look at something other than physics and astronomy, and they knew it had to be something scientific. I was the only one in the family that read the book. But I remember going to my parents and saying, Mom, Dad, the numbers don't add up. We have all these speciation events before humanity and hardly any afterwards. Can you tell me why? They said, no, go ask your science teachers. I asked my science teachers and say, go talk to those professors you know. They couldn't help me either. This fossil record enigma plagued me from the age of 11 until I picked up a Bible. And when I picked up a Bible, here's what I found. For six days, God creates. On the seventh day, he stops creating. It explains why we see a half billion species of life coming into existence before human beings and hardly any after human beings. For six days God creates, on the seventh day he stops. It also explains why so many biologists 
do not believe in God because they say we see no evidence for the supernatural handiwork of God. That's because most research biologists focus their research in the present era when God's at rest. You're not going to see God's creation miracles in the human era. But explains why so many astronomers like myself are believers, because we get our data from deep time. It takes time for light to reach our telescopes. So we see the supernatural handiwork of God everywhere. For six days God creates, on the seventh day He rests. You can read more about this in my book, A Matter of Days, which basically makes the point, when you want to deal with controversial issues, whether it be the time scale of creation or um, you know, divorce and remarriage or gender issues, you need to look at all 66 books of the Bible. You need to read the Bible literally and consistently because every book is a communication from a God who can't lie or deceive. But let me focus most of my time here on point number three. What about these events of creation? Are they correctly described? And are they in the correct chronological sequence? Well, the first day, it says, let there be light. It's important to note that the text does not say that God created light. He did that in the beginning when he created the universe. Here it says, let there be light. This is when light first appears on the surface of the earth. This is when God transforms our atmosphere from being opaque to light to being translucent. Now light from the sun, moon, and stars can penetrate to the surface of the earth and photosynthesis can begin. Life can begin as a result of this light coming through to the surface of the earth. Then creation day two, the text simply says, let there be water above and water below. Now Moses could afford to be really brief on creation day two because in the book of Job, it talks about the second creation day in great depth. All of Job 37 and the first half of Job 38 is expositing what God did on creation day two. Basically talking about God setting up this complex water cycle where we not only have rain coming down from the sky, as you read this chapter and a half in Job, it talks about how God designed the water cycle so he could multiple forms of frozen precipitation and multiple forms of liquid precipitation. These are the six most predominant, but there are many more mentioned in the book of Job. And the key point is this, we need every one of the forms of precipitation mentioned in the book of Job in order to establish global human civilization. Billions of us can be redeemed thanks to this complex water cycle that God established. And we wound up producing a television documentary on this subject, Journey Toward Creation. We have them out there at the book table, basically explaining the miracles of what happened on Creation Day 1 and Creation Day 2. And this being Detroit, what we brought here for you is our multilingual version. The DVD has 11 different languages. So if you know someone who's uh, Arabic or Farsi uh, or Mandarin, uh, feel free uh, to hand them this DVD. And incidentally, it's been shown on national television in six different nations of the world, and uh, including uh, mainland China. Uh, in fact, what amazed me, the Chinese government purchased the rights to this and actually showed it in its entirety, including the gospel close uh, at the end. <clears throat> well, thank you. And I also want to give credit to our Reasons to Believe chapter in Toronto. Uh, they took the Farsi version and broadcast that 
uh, via satellite into Iran, and they told me it broke the email response record. You know, it's illegal in Iran to have a satellite dish, but almost everybody has one. So, creation day three. It says, let dry ground appear. And this is when God transforms our planet from a water world into a planet where we've got oceans and continents coexisting. Now, at age 17, reading this, I recognized that the geology textbooks were telling us a different story. They were basically saying that the continents have always been here, that there never was a water world. But as I looked at those textbooks, I recognized that this was simply an assumption. There was no data that the geologists could point to to prove that indeed it started off at the same level where we are today. And then I entered the University of British Columbia, not yet a believer, uh, but when I was a sophomore, uh, two of the three geophysicists that were responsible for launching the discipline of plate tectonics taught the world's first course on plate tectonics. And I really found a way to get myself into the class. I was the youngest student in the class, and I got to hear what these two geophysicists were saying. And they basically gave this story of the growth of the continental land masses, saying that plate tectonics would cause the continents to become more and more uh, coverage over the surface of the Earth. I remember after one lecture going to one of those professors and saying, could it be down at zero? And he said, that's a possibility. We just know it's somewhere between zero and 10%. So I said, I wonder how this is going to play out. Now, about a year after that, I did give my life to Jesus Christ by signing my name in the back of a Gideon Bible. However, fast forward to the year 2000, a paper was published that for the first time gave a detailed uh, plate tectonics analysis of the growth of the continental land masses with respect to time, consistent with the Bible's claim that Earth begins as a water world. Then you get tiny volcanic islands, but notice this. This is the time when you get the most aggressive growth of continents. A little bit uh, more than halfway back in Earth's history, where does Genesis put it? The beginning of creation day three. A little bit more than halfway back in the creation history. Notice the consistency. Okay, then we go to March of 2018. A group of physicists said what's really responsible for the growth of the continents is what's called the great oxygenation event. And so we get a sudden burst of the growth of the continents, and so now this is the picture we have where there's no volcanic islands, we have a water world for the first 800 million years, and then there's this time when the oxygen jumps up from less than 1% to 2 or 3%, and that causes a spurt in the growth of the continents and gradual growth thereafter. Making the point that the more we learn about the geophysical history of the Earth, the tighter and tighter fit we get with what the Bible declared thousands of years ago. Now, if you want to read about this discovery, Every week, I put on an article for lay people called Today's New Reason to Believe. And on the June 11th issue that you can find on our website, I talk about this discovery where we now have a perfect fit between geophysics and what the Bible declares on Creation Day 3. Now, Creation Day 3, God's not done. Once the continents are in place, he says, let the land produce vegetation. Now, I've done a number of debates on university campuses. Somebody asked me uh, last night, well, how many campuses have you given uh, faith science lectures on? It's actually over 350. 
uh, but four times I've debated the executive director of the Skeptic Society, Michael Shermer. And we've never had a debate on the subject of Genesis. It doesn't matter. He sees Genesis 1 as the Achilles heel of the Christian faith. So no matter what our debate topic, he always goes straight at that one. And the challenge he's always given is, Hugh, this is where Genesis got it dead wrong. The fossil record says we get animals in the oceans before we get plants on the continents. My response was, well, it's not surprising. Animals have skeletons and shells, which are going to be preserved for a long period of time. That's not the case with vegetation. It decays and leaves no scientific trace. But what has happened is that in the British journal Nature, two papers were published. The first one in 2009 saying, we have found the isotope evidence that establishes that vegetation was abundant on the continents long before animals show up in the oceans. And in 2011, another paper got published says, we've now got the fossils. Actually, it was fossil parts. The biggest part was one millimeter in diameter. But it establishes again that vegetation was abundant in the continents long before we see the first animals showing up on the face of the earth. Creation day four, it says, let there be the great lights so that they may serve as signs to mark seasons, days, and years. This is when God transforms the atmosphere from translucent to transparent. So for the first three creation days, light was coming through the atmosphere, but the atmosphere was so hazy, it was impossible for any creature on the surface of the earth to see the position of the sun, moon, and stars in the sky. Now, animals need to see where the sun, moon, and stars are in the sky to regulate their clocks. And so it's critical that the atmosphere be transformed before God creates the first animals. But just a few months ago, a team of physicists decided to put this claim to the test. And so in the laboratory, they took the Earth's atmosphere and actually increased the quantity of oxygen. So for example, that we know that this is the oxygen history of the Earth, where Earth's atmosphere is less than 1% oxygen until the great oxygenation event, then it drops down to less than 1%, but there's a time 580 million years ago where it suddenly jumps from less than 1% up to 8%. That's enough for animals. Reason why we only have microbes in this area, there's not enough oxygen for anything bigger than a microbe. But then it jumps up to 8%. And what these physicists did is in the laboratory, they determined what the atmosphere would look like when it's less than 1% and they push it up to 8%. I'm going to demonstrate this with some slides. These are slides of a mountain in Colorado, Engineer Peak. And this is what Engineer Peak would look like from half a mile away where he got less than 1% oxygen in the atmosphere. So hazy, you have to really have to look hard to see that there's a mountain there. But as you push the oxygen content, you can actually barely see the mountain, and the mountain becomes clearer and clearer as the oxygen content rises. And eventually, it becomes clear enough that we can see an object in the sky that was impossible to see when the oxygen content was less than 1%. There's the moon. And animals need to be able to see that to regulate their biological clocks. I wrote an article on this for lay people in the June 18th edition of today's new reason to believe. 
you can access that at reasons.org. Today we know that the oxygenation continues. It goes from less than 1% to 8%, then it jumps up to 10%, and finally up to the present at 21%. Now, what we notice in the fossil record is this. When it jumps up to 8%, you immediately have animals. You go nothing from microbes to animals that are two meters across. No time delay. A profound challenge to any evolutionary explanation. Evolution would predict you would need tens of millions of years for that transition to take place. It happens right away. Moreover, the predator-prey relationships are optimized immediately with no time delay. And when it jumps up to 10%, you now have enough oxygen that you can have animals with hearts and brains and circulatory systems and eyes. That's called the Cambrian Explosion. We call it the Cambrian Explosion because every possible body plan shows up all at once. All the eye designs that we have today show up all at once. Even the phyla that we human beings belong to show up at the very beginning of the Cambrian Explosion. As Richard Dawkins claimed in his book, he says, these animals come out of nowhere with no evolutionary history. It's immediate. And this is what Kevin Peterson, probably the world's leading expert in the Cambrian Explosion, said in a review paper, elucidating the materialistic basis, that is, the non-theistic basis for the Cambrian Explosion has become more elusive, not less, the more we know about the event itself. Just in the last year, we found several new sites of Cambrian Explosion fossils, basically guiding even more evidence these animals all come at once without any evolutionary history. You can read about this in more detail in my book, Improbable Planet, and at reasons.org slash Ross, we're giving away the chapter where you can find several quotes, not just that one, uh, but from many evolutionary biologists about these explosive events that take place in the fossil record. But God is not done. On creation day five, he creates something brand new. This is the second time that the word bara creates something brand new that never existed before shows up. The universe was the first create. The second create is when God creates animals that are not only physical, but they're physical and soulish. A reference to the birds and the mammals. And we see about these birds and mammals, they're endowed with mind, will, and emotions. They're also endowed by the Creator with a powerful motivation to seek out a higher species, relate to that higher species, and serve and please that higher species, namely us. And when we get to creation day six, it talks about God creating three specialized kinds of land mammals. So it's important to note, Genesis never addresses when God creates the first land mammals. Instead, it jumps ahead to the three categories of land mammals that are mentioned in the book of Job that are crucial for launching civilization. We humans in our pride think we launched civilization all by ourselves. The book of Job makes the point we would have been nowhere without cows, without goats, without horses, without donkeys. They were the creatures that helped us launch a civilization. And in Genesis 1, it mentions three categories. The short-legged land mammals. This is a reference to the rodents. You say, what do we need them for? 
While we humans are wonderfully designed for a warm climate, but poorly designed for a cold climate, can you imagine living in Detroit in January with no clothing? I think you'd have a hard time surviving. Uh, but the wonderful thing about these rodents, they're warm-blooded, they have small bodies, they maintain their body heat by growing thick, luxuriant fur. They love humans, they get into your homes all the time, I think you probably noticed that. They don't mind being around with thousands of their buddies, and humans uh, quickly tame them and use them to develop the clothing they needed to move into all the climate zones of the world. The other two categories are the long-legged land mammals that are easy to tame, a reference to the herbivores we use for agriculture, and then the long-legged land mammals that are difficult to tame, a reference to the carnivores that don't make good agricultural animals, but make excellent household pets. And uh, also, you say, well, what about this lion? Can you imagine a pet that's more adaptive, protecting you from harm? Okay. But, you know, when I was at Caltech, there was a student that brought his pet lion to class every day. And it was an incredibly social animal. He just really loved hanging around human beings. Uh, when the lecture would open up, the lion would run down to the front right beside the professor, because he knew everybody would be looking at later. So and loved to romp with the toddlers at lunchtime. So uh, God created these animals to serve and to please. These to serve, these to please. Now, I've written this book, Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, to make the point that you see in Job 12. He says, look to the birds, they'll instruct you. Look to the beasts of the field, they will teach you. What he meant was they'll teach you critical spiritual lessons. He says, notice that these animals were designed by the Creator to serve and please a higher species. Likewise, we were designed to serve and please a higher being. Note that our sin causes these animals to run away from us instead of towards us. Likewise, our sin causes us to run away from God instead of towards Him. He says, notice it takes a higher being to tame these animals. Likewise, it takes a higher being to tame a human being. That's just three of seven different spiritual lessons that are taught in the book of Job. And what I've noticed in my travels around the world, the atheists I debate, they all live in big cities. If you're out in the country where you've got contact with wild birds and wild mammals, you get to see these lessons. But today, most of us live in cities where we're cut off from the lessons that we have in the book of Job. And last of all, God creates human beings. This is the third and last time we see the word create. There's something brand new about us human beings. Yes, we're physical. Yes, we share the soulish qualities of mind, will, and emotions with the birds and mammals, but we have something no other species of life on planet Earth has. We are spiritual. We are the one species that asks questions like, why am I here? Why is the universe here? What is my purpose? What is the purpose of the universe? Is there a God? Can I relate to that God? That's unique to us. And that allows us to form a relationship with the Creator. And you can read in our book, Who is Adam? The latest scientific evidence that indeed the entire human species is descended from one man and one woman that God specially created. But here's the bottom line. When you look at Genesis 1, and we understand that the word day in the creation days is referring to a literal epoch, and the frame of reference is the surface of Earth's waters, the scientific accuracy for the creation events is 10 for 10. Okay, 
before I picked up the Bible, I looked at all the creation stories in the different religions of the world. There's over a hundred of them. Only one got a score above zero. That was the Enuma Elisha of the Babylonians. It got two to 14 right in describing the events of creation. But the Bible gets a perfect score perfectly describes the events and puts them in the correct chronological sequence. And that was my first clue that this book, the Bible, was different and that it accurately predicted future scientific discoveries and was never wrong in what it said about the record of nature. And so that's what motivated me to spend an hour a day studying the Bible. And at age 19, I signed my name in the back of a Gideon Bible, giving my life to Christ. You can read more about the details of how the latest science proves uh, the total accuracy of the book of Genesis in this book, Navigating Genesis. And again, we're giving away a free chapter. And if you've got people who are not yet believers, we've produced a DVD teaching series uh, designed to get people to ask questions that will help them to discover this truth. And hey, as you walk out, uh, get this uh, card and get your free DVD. Uh, but I want to leave you with this. The more we learn about science, the more reasons we gain to believe that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. Thank you. Thank you. All right, here's, they're going to be clearing off the table and TV, putting our chairs down. I'm going to spend a little bit of time in this service before it's over uh, interviewing and doing a Q&A with Dr. Hugh Ross. But while we take our seats, I, for those of you who are guests, those of you who attend Northridge, you know this already, but um, this weekend was good for kind of a light 101 simple version of truth. If you want to go deeper, come to one of my talks on a weekend here at Northridge Church and... It'll really stimulate your synapses. All right. Um, Dr. Ross, thank you. Seriously, uh, what a great discussion on this. We appreciate it. You're welcome. I want to, I, I really want to go into the faith issues, and then we'll talk a little bit about, before the service ends, the, the variant views and how we can apply grace to it in creation. But... But the interesting thing about you is that science is where you started. It was your obsession, your passion on that autistic spectrum that you were talking about. And yet your scientific inquiry and obsession and passion and your intellect to discern it led you to faith. We live in a world who sets up this narrative that, you know, once you start pursuing the world through intelligent reasoning and science, it takes you away from faith. And that's, I love that narrative because that's exactly right. It's an intelligent faith. But I want to have you talk a little bit about your home life because a lot of times it's, we're predisposed religiously because our parents set that direction. In your talk, you said your parents, to correct your obsession, gave you a evolution, a Darwinian evolutionary kind of book. Were they predisposing you to religion, pushing you towards religion? Were they kind of steeping you in that? Or was it kind of just a, an ah-religious environment? Well, they were moral people, but they sure. were anti-religious. Ah. But both my parents became Christians in their late 70s. Wow, this is post, uh, through your life Yeah, I was story. the first to become a Christian in my family. Then my younger sister became one five years later. 
and my parents, uh, when they were in the, it took 30 years yeah, for Yeah, because a lot of, a lot of uh, and look at skepticism's real, uh, you know, in this world, and it should be. We should turn on our brain to look at truth. And a lot of skeptics would say, well, someone was raised religiously, and then they try and use their science and their brilliance to get them to be able to bear it Yeah, out. it was the opposite for and me. And you're the opposite. Right. And, and so what would you say, have you met other people like you who have oh, yes. taken that journey? Yeah, a lot of scientists I know have had a similar story to mine. Uh, that's awesome. And I, I just want everybody to know, that breaks the narrative. It really, really does. Now, with your autistic... Um, spectrum dealing, you didn't identify it early, you identified it later, and you were in this obsession. A lot of times people with autism have a real hard time relating socially, standing up and communicating in these kind of things, and yet you do this, and you do this vocationally well, and professionally. it took time. I mean, I didn't really talk till I was seven, and, uh, you know, even afterwards I had a hard time engaging people. But when I signed my name in that Gideon Bible, I realized Becoming a Christian is not only committing your life to Jesus Christ, it's committing to share your Christian faith with other people. So starting at age 19, I says, you know, no matter what kind of social difficulties I'm facing, I've got to do this. And I had the confidence that God would help me. And what I saw is that God actually led me to people that were willing to coach me on how to overcome some of my social handicaps. I especially have to give credit to my wife. She was the one that taught me how to look people in the eye. Uh, how to engage an audience. In fact, it was kind of humorous. She, she had me uh, saying, you've got to look at people when you speak. Then afterwards she says, do you know you just looked at one guy for two whole hours? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> it's taken me a few decades to be able to do what I do today. <laughs> but another thing about your story that's so great is when, uh, when Christ redeems us, when we really allow him to start transforming, uh, transforming us into what God wants us to be, it changes not just our heart and these mystical things that spiritual people often talk about. It changes the reality of our walk. It's, it's even changed how you communicate with people. Well, in 2 Corinthians 4, it says that we are cracked jars. God blesses us with particular gifts and strengths, but he also blesses us with weaknesses and handicaps. And he wants to shine through our handicaps just as much as he wants to shine through our strengths. So I tell people, don't try to hide over your weaknesses and deficiencies. Allow God's Holy Spirit to show His glory through those weaknesses. And whatever we, we all have them, right? That's we all awesome. have a weakness or a deficiency. Use that to advantage to show the glory of God. It's awesome. Well, in this world with its, uh, yeah, that's awesome. In this world with uh, the narrative, the, the very wrong, and poor, poorly thought out narrative that you can't be intelligent and pursue science and have God. A, a lot of young people who um, haven't necessarily thought through the details of God's word, the truth of God's word, maybe they were just exposed to Christianity, the current of the culture of their family or religion, that kind of thing. As they start hearing intelligent people spin these yarns about how God can't be believed if you're gonna do this, have started moving towards atheism. There's been a big move among uh, young people um, who think they're really thinking things through towards agnosticism and atheism. And we had a, a, a lot of you have texted in questions, we appreciate it, and a lot of them are redundant of one another. And one of those came in expressed this way, uh, parents just saying, how can we talk about these things 
with our son who has now declared himself to be an atheist. And I think you're an appropriate person to ask that question to. I mean, uh, you provide some hope for that. But what would you say to them? I mean, our son, how do we speak about these things with well, him? Well, children that are raised in a Christian home, it's quite common that they reach that point. And, uh, you know, I've got two sons. And when they were young, they said, Dad, uh, the fact that you believe and have all this scientific evidence, that's enough for us. We don't have to look into this. But I remember my older son coming to me when he was in his early 20s saying, uh, Dad, I'm an atheist. Uh, I knew better. I knew he was basically calling out for help. Mm -hmm. And when he was in his late 20s, he told me, Dad, thank you for not panicking when I dropped that bomb on you. And thank you for not just bashing me over, your, over my head with all the books you've written on this subject. Mm -hmm. He says, you allowed me to take the initiative. And he says, I'm just so grateful you did that. So what I share with parents, you know, be grateful that your child is engaged. I'd be much more concerned if the child was apathetic. I was worried my kids were little because I said, you know what? They're riding my coattails. They're not looking at this themselves. I was so grateful that they actually began to engage us on their own. And yeah, the first thing is, I don't know whether this is true. Okay, let's dig into it and find out. But it's important as a parent that we be kind and loving and patient and wait for them to take the initiative. And as they open the doors to us, share with them things that can maybe probe their intellect and their reasoning and their passion uh, to open the door a little bit. I, I know about this, this panicking thing. I'm, I'm a pastor, right? My whole life has been devoted to teaching God's Word as yours has. And, and um, I'll never forget as a pastor, my youngest daughter started getting towards teenagers into teenage years. And we were sitting talking one time and she looked at me and she goes, Dad, I'm not sure I believe this whole Jesus thing. And I'm telling you, you say, don't panic. Um, I might have panicked just a little bit. And, um, <laughs> well, I killed her, and we had to start having children again. So not, not really. But it, it, was, it was a scary moment. But as with you, I am so confident in the reality of God and his ability to draw us and his truth. And I tried to live that out that I felt, too, the journey would be made. And each of my kids, like yours, have found Christ not because of the stream I created, but because of Christ impacting their life. And right. that's really, really, really important. So let me ask, uh, yeah, it's great that both of us had that experience a bit. Uh, so uh, we're going to have a Q&A, uh, a longer extended one, post this service. But to close off this service, uh, Dr. Ross, I, it's an interesting thing to me that sometimes Christians have their greatest wars and fights not with people outside who disavow God and disavow the Bible and disavow that, but with people who, like them, claim the authority of Scripture right. and claim the Lordship of Jesus Christ and claim the promises of Jesus and that they're being, you know, uh, obedient to his commands and those kind of things. And yet they just ravage each other and tear each other apart like we're seeing in our world in politics now and on the social media thing. And it's crazy to me. It's like, by this will men know that you're my followers, by your love for one another, Jesus says. And it's like... We go after each other. This is one area. Cre creation theology, creation theory, as it applies to God's Word, is one of those areas where people can be ruthless. They can be vicious. Yeah, yeah. ruthless. About, and it's like people who are, and I get it when they're trying to compromise God's Word and all this, but when they're trying to interpret God's Word with its authority, with these views, wow, 
wow, let's have a discussion, let's have a conversation. You travel in this world. Um, you debate inside and outside of the faith. You debate young earth and, you know, you present more of an old earth thing and you do all these different things. But could you talk about the idea of, hey, um, love needs to define us and grace needs to be applied in these areas. And yes, let's defend the faith and be ready, but come on. Uh, would you tell me about... Well, there's actually an apologetic argument here because a number of atheist scholars have come to me and says, we notice that Christians are much more vicious in attacking you than we atheists. What's going on here? I mean, you're all supposed to be part of the same club. And I says, well, this is evidence that God is opposed by a supernatural evil being because wouldn't it make sense for that being to mess things up inside the church rather than outside the church? That's in his best interest. And I actually get atheists thinking about maybe there is something supernatural here because the way Christians treat one another, it doesn't make rational sense. Yeah. But what I'd say to believers is this, is that uh, 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared with good reasons for your hope in Christ and present them with gentleness, respect, and a clear conscience. People listen more to your demeanor than they do your words. And non-Christians watch how we Christians treat one another. They're not going to trust us if they don't see that we're willing to be charitable Absolutely. where we disagree with one another. Absolutely. I, I, our whole, yeah, that's fantastic. Well, as we close up, our vision at Northridge is to advance the hope of Jesus. Pretty difficult to advance the hope if we're spreading it in darkness and anger and all that, which brings us to another First Peter passage. Be sober, be vigilant, be aware. The adversary, the devil, really is trying to rip you apart. And I am just so excited that Christianity is an intelligent faith. We can talk about it intelligently. As a result, we can grow in faith. And so would you, one more time, just thank Dr. Ross for being here. You're welcome. Thank, thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you. 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 Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. You can be seated just for a second. A couple of things I want to share with you about. Thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting people. I hope you'll share this. We'll be. It'll be online. Uh, later today, and it'll be on Facebook because we did it live. And be, be looking in May. I have a, a kind of a podcast that's occasionally done on bradpowellonline.com, and we did a conversation with Hugh yesterday that took it in very different directions. Look for that to come out in May. We'll try and announce it as well. We're having a question and answer time. At, uh, we had to start the service late because of traffic and all that, so we're going to move it just a little bit. We're going to start it at about 12.35 now. Um, and so if you have to leave and you're not staying for the question and answer time, uh, then we want you to be aware next week Pete Wilson's coming and starting a brand new series. We're excited about having Pete back. And then uh, it's going to be called, it's just a job, it's on work-related issues. If you are staying, know this, your children can be cared for. You don't have to go to Ridge Kids and pick them up. They're going to take care of your kids throughout the question and answer time so you can come. We'd love it if those of you in the balcony who are staying would come down. We're going to have a more intimate time down on the main floor. And uh, we're just thankful that you're here. Be praying for us. The Q&A that we're going to do later will also be online later. So uh, thanks for being here. Blessings, everybody. All right, thank you very, very much. You can settle on in as close as you want to. Get to see how good-looking this Dr. Hugh Ross really is.
Um, as people are, as you are settling into your seats, I want you to know that I love the choice you've made to be here. Um, last night, we had such an awesome time uh, in the Q&A. It personalized it so well, it was so enjoyable, and Dr. Ross is so gracious to do this. Uh, some of you have been texting in, we appreciate that. Here's what we want you to know, it's an amazing thing. We did Q&A last night, Saturday night, we're doing Q&A uh, this afternoon, and the questions are so similar. Um, in fact, I can phrase them the same way each night, because it's like the, the questions we have are, are very close. And we're going to get kicked right into this, we're not going to go wear out our welcome with you, but... Um, Dr. Ross, sure appreciate you being willing to do this. Thank you. Um, it's not like you haven't been talking all day for the last two days, <laughs> including <laughs> yesterday afternoon with me, so I'll, I appreciate that very, very much. First question I have for you, I actually asked it in the earlier service, but didn't in this later service. Um, you're a scientist, and you've put so much stock into, so much, not stock, so much weight into your study of science and creation and all that. And as you look at the panorama of issues that are involved in bringing someone to faith in Christ, um, and this is a bunch of people ask this concept, what's the most compelling, compelling reason to motivate someone to Christianity from your view? Well, when I began my talk in this uh, second morning service, I said, reasons to believe is taking the new reasons to bring people to the traditional reasons. Mm -hmm. And uh, the most compelling argument for the Christian faith is what Paul addressed in 1 Corinthians, where he said, if the resurrection did not happen, then we are to be pitied amongst all people because we believed a lie. But it says if Jesus really did bodily raise from the dead, then this is the most important fact of all of cosmic and human history, and we all need to pay attention to that. And the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is even stronger than the historical evidence for the defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. Mm -hmm. And so this is the best established fact. But what we've discovered is we need to find other reasons to bring people to that reason. Sometimes jumping straight to the resurrection turns people off, but if you can build a bridge, you can get them to that most compelling reason. That's really great, and I, I love that because you're right, the resurrection is the place where, wow, redemption can be completed and new right. life can be given. So uh, another one would be, um, and you didn't mention this in, I think, each of your lectures with us, but I, I, someone's asked this question, I think they'd like us to expand a little bit. What should we think about the Big Bang as Christians from your understanding of science? And I know you talked about the catalyst it was in your faith, but, you know, they hear about it, they wonder about it, they hear it being talked about. Put it in perspective as to how maybe we should well, react to it. Well, the history of astronomy is interesting, because Big Bang was first proposed in 1925. For 50 years, astronomers fought against the Big Bang because of its obvious Christian implications. I mean, they recognize it's Big Bang, it's talking about a space-time beginning, expansion just like the Bible describes. And so it was astronomers kicking and screaming against the Big Bang that finally were forced by the overwhelming evidence. This is the way it is. In fact, uh, one of the more famous atheists, I took a course from him, Jeffrey Burbage, 
And uh, he wrote a piece where he said, what's bothering me is all these astronomers rushing off to join the first church of Christ to the Big Bang. <laughs> and so he saw those implications, says, that's why I'm an atheist, that's why I reject Big Bang cosmology. But he says, I reject it for theological reasons, not for scientific reasons. Wow, do you find that? That's a curious thing, because often uh, laymen, people outside of the science disciplines, uh, look in the science and go, that, man, these people are motivated purely by objective fact. They're going after the objective fact, and if they find the objective fact, they'll surrender what they once held to and what they once forward. You just clearly, you didn't infer it, you stated it. They really claim a, a presupposed belief system themselves, and there are limits to what objective facts they'll embrace as they pursue that? Yes. Well, a lot of scientists I know, they're not atheists, they're deists. They do believe there is a God that created the universe, but they're unwilling to go towards theism because as if we go there, that means there's a God that's watching and evaluating my life, and I want to be in control. <laughs> I so, have to admit that is scary, but yes, it is true at the yes. same time. So uh, how do... Uh, I, a lot of people ask this question. I, uh, you can tell us how, if this is normal or we're abnormal, but someone says, Tell us about dinosaurs and how do dinosaurs fit into the biblical timeline? Well, Psalm 104 makes the point that God packs our planet with as much life as possible and as diverse as possible for as long as possible. And we're the beneficiaries of that. We have all this oil and natural gas and coal in the crust of the earth and marble and limestone, more than 76 quadrillion tons of these biodeposits. So we're the beneficiaries of all this life that God has created and for the fact that he's packed the planet with the maximum, which means that uh, according to different geological conditions on the earth, God's going to create different species. Now, if you want animals as big as these 80-ton dinosaurs uh, and you want them living on land, they have to have water support. And so the time in Earth's history where we had these huge shallow seas covering the continents, that was optimal for God to create these big animals. Now, because we don't have those seas today, the largest land mammal you can have that won't be killed by the laws of physics is an elephant. Elephant, I mean, any animal bigger and heavier than an elephant will injure itself because of gravity, hmm. unless it's got water support. So, I mean, if you've got a dinosaur walking around in 15 feet of water, you can make it more massive uh, than an elephant. And yeah, there was three epochs in Earth's past history where we had those conditions, and that's when the Earth was packed with these dinosaurs. And thanks to those dinosaurs, we have an abundance of biodeposits that we can reap to sustain our civilization. And to jump off this as well, there's a lot of... Uh, uh conflict of study and thought on the idea of humans and dinosaurs walking at the same time on the earth, and I just heard you clearly say, no. Yes, because during the human era, we don't have those shallow seas. Right. Without those shallow seas, you can't have animals uh, that uh, big. Now, uh, I believe they fit in in creation day five. They're between the first animals that God creates and the birds and mammals he creates towards the end. And people say, well, why didn't God mention them? And I says, well, Genesis is only given the highlights. The dinosaurs don't make the top ten. Yeah. Neither do the Neanderthals make the top ten. So they're dropped off as well. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, uh, next one. Um, do you believe that there is a scientific explanation for a biogenesis 
and can you explain what it is, or do you believe that everything is purely a divine creation? And once again, you inferred clearly in your talk to this, but someone's looking for more specific. Well, abiogenesis is the idea that physics and chemistry alone is enough to explain the origin of the first life form on planet Earth. And uh, one of the books that we have published is called Origins of Life, and it's based on our scientists attending Origin of Life research conferences. And what we discern from those conferences, number one, the origin of life happens on planet Earth as early as the laws of physics and the universe will permit. Uh, and it happens immediately. We can't even measure the time window in which it takes place. So it's an instantaneous event on a geological time scale. And also it happens when Earth has no uh, prebiotic molecules. If you've got no prebiotic molecules and you've got no time, you got no natural explanation for the origin of life. And you also got an explanation for why there are no prebiotics. If you got oxygen, that stops the prebiotic chemistry. If you don't have oxygen, ultraviolet radiation comes in from the sun, and that stops uh, the prebiotic chemistry. It's called the oxygen-ultraviolet paradox. By itself, that's sufficient to prove the origin of life must be a miraculous event. God intervened. God, God intervened. And other, I mean, my colleague Fazal Rana, our staff biochemist, he's written a book called Creating Life in the Lab. We haven't actually created life in the lab, but we've done some baby steps. But what he points out is, notice all the money and technology and brain power of these biochemists that's necessary to make these very tiny, relatively insignificant steps. Mm -hmm. And he says, by analogy, someone a lot better funded with a lot more intellect and knowledge and technology <laughs> must have done it in the first place. And his lab's a little bigger. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I've heard a lot of Christians along the way wondering about this. Someone asked the question, can you explain carbon dating? And in your view, is it reliable? Well, every radiometric dating tool has a range where it's reliable and a big range where it's not. Carbon-14 tells you how long something has been dead. However, it only works between about 1,000 years ago uh, to about 40,000 years ago. So there's that time window. The rule of thumb is you can use a radiometric dating tool within a factor of eight of a half-life. Mm -hmm. Carbon-14's half-life is 5,715 years. So you can multiply that by eight and divide it by eight. That's where it's going to give you reliable dates. Outside of that, it won't. Yeah, and I think we were talking about this last night. Um, that's why it can be very useful in dating uh, Bible manuscripts, manuscripts yes. and those kind of things to prove, wow, these things, the Bible really is predictive. It really was written back then. These are dated there, and look at what it... Uh, well, the Dead Sea Scrolls is a good example. Carbon-14 dating establishes that they were composed in the second century B.C., mm -hmm. and the Book of Daniel shows up in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which means Daniel really was predicting future events in the Greek Absolutely. and Roman Empire. It's really cool, and Isaiah even. Uh, yes. Events there, so that's fantastic. Uh, now, because some of these answers, like abiogenesis are a little bit more heady for us. Uh, I inserted this right here. It's from you. A bunch of you asked this question, but this is more my uh, IQ level. What about aliens, uh, right? That aliens, uh, it was phrased in all kinds of different ways, but aliens, question mark. What's your view? Well, my sons asked me that question when they were eight and nine years old. Dad, do aliens exist? 
And because I was not yet a citizen, I pulled out my alien card from my wallet and showed them. <laughs> He's Canadian <laughs> by birth. So uh, uh, but that, now that was kind of cool. That's funny, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I've actually written a book on this. It's called Lights in the Sky and Little Green Men. We don't have it at the table here, but you can order it. Basically making the point that when we look outside of our solar system, we see nothing but hostile conditions for advanced life. We can't even find a star uh, that has the same conditions as a sun that would permit a planet to orbit it, about which advanced life uh, operates. Hmm. I mean, I got friends that are looking for these signals from intelligent life. I said, until you've got a star that's uh, sufficiently like the sun, you shouldn't even bother looking. It's a waste of telescope time. Absolutely. Uh, so, but also we know that it's impossible for physical beings to travel from another planetary system to our planetary system. The distances are too great. And you can't go the velocity of light. If you go the velocity of light, you'll destroy your spaceship and you'll destroy the people on board. So uh, Star Trek is unbelievable, is that what you're saying? Uh, Warp 9 is out of the question? <laughs> well, another complaint of my sons is when we watch a science fiction film, they say, Dad, please don't tell us how many times per minute they're violating the laws of physics. <laughs> <laughs> Your kids and my kids had similar experiences only a different way. I would stop the, the movie or the show about every three minutes and say, what principle can we learn from this? What, what values can we... You were doing science. That's hilarious. <laughs> I love it. Uh, next question that came in from our, our crew. Why do you think many scientists in the academic community today are turning away from Darwinian evolution? Well, uh, that's ubiquitous within the scientific community. In fact, evolutionists will be offended if you call them a Darwinist, because they were not Darwinists. They're neo-Darwinists, mm. in the sense that Darwin talked about explaining life through mutations and natural selection. They're saying we're more sophisticated. It's natural selection, mutations, and gene exchange. Uh, but they're still thinking that they can explain the history of life through natural means alone. Mm -hmm. And it's like, my whole point is, you need to look at the physics of the sun. The sun gets brighter and brighter as it fuses hydrogen to helium, which means life that's going to be appropriate at epoch A will not work at a later epoch. What God does, he removes life from planet Earth, replaces it with new life that's a little more efficient at pulling greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. So as the sun gets brighter and brighter, our atmosphere becomes less and less uh, efficient in being able to trap solar heat, keeping the temperature in the surface of the Earth optimal for life. But here's my point. Only a mind that knows the future physics of the sun will know which life to remove and which new life to put on planet Earth. And this is actually declared in Psalm 104, verses 29 and 30. It's a property of all life to die off, but God recreates and renews the face of the Earth. And through those frequent renewals, uh, that we have life being abundant as long as it is giving us the biodeposits we need to be able to have billions of people able to hear the gospel message. It's crazy. That's really, really good. Um, uh, by the way, everybody understand every word he says, right? Uh, every, okay. So next one. What are your thoughts about God using natural or scientifically explainable means to bring about miracles? It's a little bit of a nuance to the last question we asked about naturalism. Right. That's a good question because I often run into atheists who say, your God performs miracles, uh, but they're thinking of miracles like Jesus walking on top of water or transforming water into wine. And it's like, 
Most of the miracles in the Bible, it's God performing miracles through the laws of physics, not independent of the laws of physics. So I think it's important to make the point, God has a treasure chest filled with different kinds of miracles that he can perform. Some are beyond the laws of physics, some are within the laws of physics. A good example would be what you see uh, in uh, Judges, where Deborah and her army is on top of Mount Tabor, where it's dry and it's pouring rain at the bottom of Mount Tabor. Meteorologically, that just doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. But God can make that miracle happen without violating the laws of physics. Then you've got that passage in Colossians 2, which says that God sustains everything in the universe, making the point that all the molecules and atoms would disintegrate if God wasn't miraculously sustaining uh, the, uh, the, the capability for these atoms and molecules to remain in a stable fashion and allow us to exist. Uh, you've got that statement in Proverbs that we were, if God were to take away his hand, all of us would breathe our last breath and die. Yeah, so the ongoing sustaining miracles. There are sustaining life. miracles, there's miracles within the laws of physics that I call the transformational miracles, and there's the transcendent miracles where God operates outside of space and time. Yeah, and people who have bought the narrative that science and God don't mix and everything, who are really locked into naturalism in their view, um, are the ones that have such a hard time with miracles and it often keeps them from faith. And we had, I'm gonna be really transparent, though a lot of similar questions have come in. This one was presented last night. I actually talked about it at our last night Q&A, but I just think it really gets to the heart of two issues. And the, the person who was here texted, I have endless questions as a liberal, loose agnostic. Um, and then it says, but here's one of my bigger ones, because the burden, and, and then he puts the burden on us, because the burden of proof is on religion, to prove the reality of what they believe. Um, who impregnated Mary? Then goes on to talk about, you've got to have, you know, the seed and the egg and the conception and all that. But then they threw on this last part of the equation, say, I feel insulted by Christians dictating the condition of my heart just because I think all they're talking about is a steaming pile of crap. Um, and the reason I quoted all of that is because the one thing he and I have in common is that word crap. I love it and use it a lot, as many of you know, begrudgingly. Um, but the two sides of this question that I have for you that we talked about last night the first side is the difficulty of some people to believe in the miracle of the, the God conceiving Jesus through the Virgin Mary, you know, um, and other miracles like that. And I want you to address that, but I also want you to address the second part of his thing, because this is one person's dialogue with us. Then he got angry a bit. I'm insulted by you guys, but you know, on this kind of thing. And I have found this a lot in my dialogue with unbelievers. Yeah, they have a problem with the miracle thing. But they really have a problem with us. And it seems to me that there's a, a thin line between their intellectual arguments or non-arguments and their emotional hurt or pain or brokenness that came from the hands of someone associated with religion or Jesus or that kind of thing. So you've confronted both of those, I'm sure. Can you talk about how you see them and how closely they walk together? Well, I think the first point you raised, the burden of proof is upon you who believe in God. That's not how science works. That's not how theology works. <laughs> and I happen to agree with that, yes. <laughs> okay. 
we have competing models. So we need to take the non-theistic model, compare it with a Christian model, and say which model is better at explaining the reality that we see, which one gives the most comprehensive explanation that we see in the natural world, which one has the greatest predictive success. And so we contrast the non-theistic model with the theistic model. That's what we do a lot at Reasons to Believe, is basically show you how the advancing science uh, establishes one model against another. And there's more than two models, of course. So the burden of proof is on everybody yeah. to establish a model. And we need to put them all to the test. As it says in Thessalonians, test everything, hold fast to that uh, which is good. And when somebody brings up the virgin birth to me and says, well, you know, we already have scientific proof. I talked about on my talk that God created space, time, matter, and energy. I mean, that's the biggest miracle any scientist could possibly hope to uncover. If God can do that, then the Holy Spirit putting a seed inside of Mary's uh, womb is no big deal. <laughs> so, Agreed. Yeah, that makes sense. And then the third point that was raised is, uh, what I've noticed is that often with the non-believer, there is a hurt and a wound that they're unwilling to reveal. <clears throat> and the secret to getting some conversation going there, deal with their intellectual objections. As you deal with their intellectual objections, you're building a relationship of trust. And eventually you come to the point where you can say, you know, I can tell that there's an emotional hurt there. Can you tell me about it? Tell me what happened. Uh, but you can't lead with that. Yeah. Uh, but there will come a time when you, and it's just like what you see in therapy. If people will not talk about their wounds and hurts, they're not going to get past it. Absolutely. I have found, uh, uh, we've had a lot of atheists come into Northridge seriously and take this journey towards faith. And uh, one in particular I remember, in fact, I rehashed it in the book that I wrote years ago about, he came in and he was just angry. He was angry at us and angry at things, and he says, you know, I'm coming and listen, if I ever hear anything that makes sense to me, I might want to have a conversation. I mean, he was just angry. And, uh, and I'm an atheist. And then over time, I got a letter from him and saying, hey, I've been coming, and I just want you to know I'm no longer an atheist, I'm now an agnostic. You know, it's like he, and it was, he was really proud of the journey he took. And I love being the pastor of a church where, where we understand you need to take a journey from each point of thing. But in the end, he actually came and, you know, as with you and with me, surrendered to the Lordship of Christ and experienced his salvation. But he, he had to get past his wounds and his anger at other Christians and applying it to us and me. Well, you know, even when there is no wound or hurt, I've noticed with uh, educated uh, people who have not been raised in a Christian home, don't know Christians, haven't had contact with the Bible, the minimum time for them to get curious about God and become a follower of Jesus Christ is about a year and a half, and the average time is about three years. Wow. So I tell people in the church, it's like fishing. Don't yank the hook too quickly. Uh, it takes time. <laughs> Are you a fisherman? No. <laughs> <laughs> Me you know, either. Well, people say, how do you get all this time to write books? I don't golf and I don't fish. <laughs> there you go. And you probably don't watch much TV either. No, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Uh, that makes sense. No wonder my IQ is so low. Okay, here we go. Um, I don't golf that much. I certainly don't fish. But can, can you, this, this is a funny one. I think it's time for a funny one. Uh, this came in from multiple sources as well. Uh, can you please end this flat earth debate for us right here and now? <laughs> well, this is a mystery because for 
For 30 years, nobody was talking about a flat Earth, and about two years ago, it suddenly spawned. And I think it's because people are more and more suspicious of the scientific community, and it's because a lot of people try to represent science where they're not experts, mm -hmm. so there's a growing distrust, even to the point where people think maybe the scientists are fooling us about the figure of the Earth. Uh, but and I get this on my Facebook page all the time, and I tell people, take a flight from Athens to Johannesburg, get a window seat, take a night flight and look out the window. You're going to be able to see the constellations slowly turn upside down. And I've done those flights, and it's really cool to watch those constellations turn upside down. That only happens if the Earth is a sphere. That makes uh, sense. And then if you look at distant mountains, because I'm a mountaineer, uh, when you're on top of a mountain looking at a distant mountain, you only see the top of the mountain. You don't see the bottom. That only happens if the Earth is spherical. But to me, the strongest reason why we have to be living on a spherical Earth, if it was flat, cats would have knocked everything off the edge. <laughs> <laughs> this is a follow-up question. Are you a cat person? I have cats. You do? Yeah, and they're knocking things off the edge all the time. <laughs> Well, uh, you'll never be invited back to Northridge then. No, I'm just kidding. That's not true. All right. Uh, you said the Bible has predictive powers. Yes. Um, with discoveries, some of which you, you've made even have been made within the last 10 and 18 years. Science keeps discovering new things. What are those discoveries the Bible has predicted that you've been starting to see come to fruition? Well, the Bible not only predicts future scientific discoveries, it predicts future historical events. And particularly when you look at Ezekiel 32 to 40, it's filled with predictions of what will happen when Israel is reborn for a second time. Now, there's a good 15 predictions in those uh, nine chapters that have already been fulfilled, but there's a bunch that have not yet been fulfilled. Uh, but what, one of those predictions is there will come a time when Israel will become the richest nation on the planet on a per capita basis. And already, Israel ranks second in uh, NASDAQ companies on the NASDAQ listing. Here's a nation of seven million that's second to the United States of America in NASDAQ companies. It also makes the point a time will come uh, when the Jews in the world will be living in the land of Israel. Well, when Israel was founded, it was only half a million Jews in Israel. Now half the Jews in the world live in the land of Israel. So we're seeing these uh, prophecies yeah. being fulfilled. And when you learn to count on the Word of God and its authority as being accurate time and time again, you start now looking for the predictions to come true instead of wondering if they ever will. And that's true. It's a faith issue. It's a uh, faith issue. Yeah, that's cool. But it's testable. I yeah. mean, literally every that's year right. you can see, hey, is this there's, working there's, out? There's reason and probability that works in its favor after, I loved your 10 by 10 thing. It's like, give me a break. I mean... 10 by 10, how do you do better than that? How do you do better than that, yeah. exactly. Uh, another question, if, if we're talking to an atheist and have limited time to make our point, what is the most compelling piece of scientific evidence that there must be a God? Well, we talk about the big five, because when we've seen atheist scholars come to faith in Christ, mm -hmm. uh, it's the origin of the universe, proving that there must be a God, the origin of life, the origin of human beings, where does our consciousness come from, the design of the earth, universe, and life that makes possible human existence, and then what I talked about today, 
uh, how the early chapters of Genesis are a perfect fit with the findings of science. Uh, I mean, for example, uh, I saw a Nobel laureate in chemistry who is an atheist come to faith in Christ. And that happened through him reading three of our books, but it was those big five that were the turning point for him. Once he had that under his belt, he walked down the aisle at a Baptist church giving his life to Christ. That's amazing. Seriously, that's really neat. Uh, and that's why Reasons to Believe is so neat. It, it's not just reasons for reason's sake. It's, it's reasons to bring you to, like you We're said. We're all about evangelism. Yeah, that's that, exactly that's our right. And that's Northridge exists to wake the world up to Jesus. That's our gig. I, I'm going to ask this because it's been texted and a lot of people have asked that question. Um, I think you answered it in your, in your talk, but you can probably go a little further with it here. Can you clarify your position on Adam and Eve, they ask? Were they literal people and, and you know, uh, how, how, were they literal people, once again, this was phrased from last night, how about, uh, were the, how about that talking snake, and how could the earth populate through just those two people? So these three lines of thought with Adam and Eve, were they real, literal, um, you clearly taught that God did a special creation of them in, in your lecture, and then the other parts of this question. Well, we had reasons to believe have been involved for the past 10 years in engaging fellow Christians who uh, believe that humans came from a large population, not from a literal Adam and Eve. And uh, we've actually done two books where we debate these uh, individuals. Um, and so, for example, we debated the BioLogos scholars on this whole issue. But our position is all of us come from one man and one woman uh, that God specially created sometime during the last ice age, so a recent event. Mm -hmm. And it's how you can get a population of seven and a half billion. You'll see in my book, Navigating Genesis, a little table which basically shows you how rapidly the population expands from just two people where they're living about 900 years on average, where the best birth control method they got is the rhythm method without thermometers, and where they're reproductive for just two-thirds of their lifespan. Because uh, it tells us in Genesis 5, Adam and Eve had many sons and daughters besides Cain, Abel, and Seth. Absolutely. They had to have a minimum of 120 and probably up around 200. And uh, with that kind of reproductive capability, I have a table in uh, navigating Genesis, showing that by the time Adam is 760 years of age, there'd be 17 billion people on the face of the earth. Wow. And I put that table in there to make the point that the reason why God had to bring a flood upon the earth is that murder was so out of control, humanity was in danger of self-extinction. In fact, to explain why the population was as low as it was, uh, the murder rate had to be above 95%. That means 95% plus of the human population was having their lives being terminated by being murdered by their fellow man. And I believe the patriarchs, as you see mentioned in Genesis 5 and 11, they're the rare survivors who died a natural death. Hmm. Uh, the vast majority, in fact, I would argue the average lifespan we have today was longer than the average lifespan in the days before the flood even though people had the capability of living 900 years. Wow, that's crazy. Because murder was so out of control. No, that makes sense. Um, all right, uh, so I, I want to get a little bit personal with you, and then we'll end up the, the different thing. They, uh, a lot of times scientists, uh, academics, they become, uh, 
knowledge givers, they become like their own data and those kind of things, and people forget about their personal thing. And I love that you interweave your personal story of coming to faith and, and that. And we weren't able to go deeply into that, but it was clear that your parents didn't raise you. They were moral, but they were anti-religious, and yet you made your way to Jesus uh, on this thing. But talk about how then, post your faith in Jesus, God's used your story and allowed you to be a part of other family members who came to faith. Because we had this discussion yesterday at lunch. I thought it was fascinating, your mom, the story of your dad, and then your mom and your siblings. Well, you know, when I became a Christian, I was really wanting to see my parents come to faith in Christ. Uh, but I remember talking to my mother, and she says, well, the Trinity is a mathematical impossibility. There is no answer for the problem of evil. Every time I tried to engage her, she would change the subject or walk away. Um, and this went on for years and years. Mm -hmm. And uh, finally, one Christmas time, I sent my parents uh, some DVDs of a TV show I was involved in. And I got a call from my dad, and uh, he said, you know that DVD you sent to us on the problem of evil? Your mother kept saying all the way through the DVD, why didn't you tell us this 30 years ago? <laughs> and my dad said, I had to bite my lip and say, because you wouldn't let him. <laughs> uh, but that was a turning point in her coming to faith in Christ. That's awesome. And uh, I found out that my dad had been secretly reading the Bible because I remember being with him uh, when he was in his early 70s. And I said, Dad, you're quoting Bible verses. And he said, shh, don't tell your mom. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. So he became a Christian when he was about 78. My mother, when she was about 79. And what was a real uh, blessing for me was to watch my mother lead one of her nursing friends to Christ on her deathbed. Oh, that's really so. something else. And it goes, again, it goes back to the, the discussion about let's be patient, let's be gentle, let's be kind, let's be ready to give a reason. Um, but you can't rush the redemptive process in anyone's life, but you can certainly facilitate it. You know? Well, you can't either. And something I say in my book, Always Be Ready, which is out there, is that with my mother, I finally recognized that God had five other people he wanted to bring to Christ. And if my mother came to Christ first, it wouldn't have happened. And so God had a bigger picture in mind. That's really neat. And so I got some insight why the, the waiting time. Okay, so I'm going to ask you uh, two last questions. The, the first one is this, and then the second will be a play off of it. Is there a question you don't have an answer to? Yes. <laughs> Where that happens is when somebody says, uh, Dr. Ross, can you give a response to this paper that got published yesterday? And I say, well, I need to read the paper before I can respond to <laughs> but it. But after you read it, you'll have an answer. Yeah, that's I usually give an answer afterwards. But yeah, there are times where I say, you know what, uh, I'm not a geneticist, but if you really want a, an answer to that, we've got two experts on our Reasons to Believe staff that are geneticists, and you can talk to them and get into the details. Great. And so it's important that we help one another in our witness. And, uh, you know, we frequently at Reasons to Believe will do a skeptics forum where we invite skeptics to ask any question they want. But it's usually best if you've got a panel to respond. Right. So... That's true. Because then we, you have multiple personalities. Exactly. And we all relate to different people differently. I mean, it's just crazy. So, you've been asked a billion questions, you know, to use hyperbole probably. Uh, what question haven't we asked you that you think ought to be asked more often, or the information of the answer of that would be something we need to know? Well, 
sometimes I get asked, what is the most common question you get? The most common question I get is, if God created the universe and created us, who created God? And it's a question I actually answer in a book called Beyond the Cosmos. Mm -hmm. And I taught today about how we now have a theorem that proves that space and time were created, mm -hmm. which means that there must be a being who's able to operate in the equivalent of another dimension of time, because time by definition is that realm in which cause and effect phenomena occur. And so the creation of time implies that causal agent that's got access to at least the equivalent of two dimensions of time. And if time is two-dimensional, that means we can treat it as a plane. And so God could be operating on a timeline over here, infinitely long, that never crosses the timeline of our universe. As such, he has no beginning, no ending, and is uncreated. The Bible's the only holy book that makes that statement. It's also the only holy book that says that God can arbitrarily compress time or expand time. A day of the Lord is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day, a thousand years is like three hours in the night. Mathematically, that's only possible for an entity that's got access to at least the equivalent of two dimensions of time. So the whole point is, anything constrained to one dimension of time that can't be stopped or reversed must have an ultimate beginning or creation event. But God's in a different category. Which also then explains how he can uh, entertain all of our prayers and conversations at one time. He can. My sons asked me that question when they were three and a half. How can God listen to billions of prayers at the same time? Well, if God's got access to the second dimension of time, what's 20 microseconds for us can be infinite time for Him. Yeah. And when I shared that with my sons, they had the confidence that God was hearing their prayers. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Well. We appreciate, look, God's created a lot of gifts and given a lot of abilities. Many of them aren't stewarded for his kingdom and for advancing his truth and trying to draw people to Jesus. You've taken your gifts and you're doing the best you can to give people reasons to believe and to draw them to faith. We want to celebrate that. We want to celebrate you and we want to thank you for coming. Would you join me in thanking you? Okay. Dr. Ross, thank you so much. Really you're appreciate it. You're welcome. And thank you, everybody, for being here. We appreciate it. We'll see you next weekend. Pete Wilson. Thanks, guys.